And good morning, everybody. It's been a little while. Um, glad to see you all again, or those of you that I can see. <laughs> more and more often, there are less uh, videos on and more videos off. I guess that is the um, because Zoom has just kind of wore itself out, um, and we can hear without having to be seen. Um, and that's just fine. Um, but feel free. I do feed off of those people that are um, visible. I see your head shake yes or no, um, so that I um, understand if I'm going down the right direction or saying something you disagree with. But um, today's topic is uh, um, negotiations and negotiating to win. And let me just give you a little bit of background on why we decided to do this. There is some misunderstanding out there of um, our duties as a fiduciary to our client and our ethics and what we do in negotiations and when we cross a line. And and I think that uh, it just bears just having a small conversation and then talking about how we can be better at negotiations um, and having a little bit of a conversation about what we do in represent, representing a client and what our duties are and what obligations we have. And then um, also being aware of those ethics that might uh, um, play into it. And, and I think really the most important thing to say is is that don't let your your um uh fear of doing something wrong keep you from doing what is right now i know that sounds unusual but here's one of the things you're going to hear me say today is that the fear of loss is greater than the hope of gain and people react more on fear than they do on hope and we know that from study after study after study that people's reactions are based off of more off of fear than they are off of some kind of hope that they're going to get something. And as a result of that, sometimes we don't do things we should be doing because we're worried that we might do something wrong. And instead, what we should be thinking is, is, you know what, if there's question about whether I should or should not be doing this, I should look it up. I should do a little research. I should talk to my broker. I should talk to other agents and see, you know, if I'm crossing a boundary or I'm not crossing a boundary. And I say that in that in today's market, we are being pushed more and more and more by buyers to better represent them in negotiations, especially when it might be a competition, meaning that there's a chance that somebody else may be looking at the exact same property and how do we advise them and and how do we present offers in a better way and position better so that they have the most opportunity to um, come out on top and whatever on top means. And part of that is uh, um, learning and understanding um, your clients. So that's what I'm going to do in the 50 or 45 minutes that we'll spend um, together is just kind of talk through some of this and, and start us thinking about negotiation being more of a skill that you learn than something that we um, that just happens naturally. Um, negotiation for some of you is something you feel like you're good at. But what I'm going to suggest to you is, is that the difference in good negotiators and great negotiators are the ones that actually start intentionally focusing on what they're saying and what they're doing during negotiations to make sure that they're presenting what is the best possible um, scenario and set of terms for their client such that the outcome is most likely to result in what the client they represent is wanting to actually happen. And in saying that, let's just talk about what is a great negotiator. Great negotiators are people that, that find solutions when solutions are hard to find. They're people that have really good marketable skills. They can tell other people how they're good at something like negotiations. Um, they're, they're agents that actually practice their skills and, and they're trying to get better, not leaning on um, past experience only. Um, they also are ones that identify negotiating tactics that can be helpful to them or that other agents might be using that could be harmful to them. And, they're, and they dedicate time to, to putting together a negotiating plan of some sort, and they always know what the outcome they want to happen is 
prior to them starting the negotiations. In other words, they don't let the negotiations start leaning them in a certain direction and then run back to their client and say, hey, I think maybe this would be the right way to go. All of those scenarios have have been thought about and um, tried to perceive in advance when possible. So let me talk about first just this, I mentioned being an intentional negotiator. Um, There's a difference in an experienced negotiator and an intentional negotiator. What I mean by that is the experienced negotiator is that person that naturally has words to say during a negotiation. They, something is said and they have an automatic response and we call them scripts sometimes. And they've built up a a number of scripts and sayings and and different uh, um, responses that might uh, lean towards their benefit in a negotiation. That's completely different than an intentional negotiator. Um, and the reason why it's different and, and the, what may happen is that experienced natural negotiator um, sometimes does not get their client where they want them to go because they are responding and reacting based on um, what's happening at the moment, not based on a specific set of scenarios that they really wanted to happen. Um, and, and this is an area where our confidence can be very misleading to us when we get into real estate. It's where you think you're really good and you're really confident because you've done this for years and years and years. And, you know, I, w- I could say, you know, I've, I've negotiated over 3000 contracts and, you know, I'm really good at it. And I've negotiated, you know, two, three hundred million dollars worth of, of deals. I've helped as a broker in over three billion dollars worth of contracts. And I could start using that. But that confidence can actually cause harm to my current client. And what I want us to do is step back from it for just a moment and say, how can we be intentional in what we're doing rather than reactionary to what we're doing? Instead of leaning on our confidences in our past, we start looking for the future to how we can do it better and how to be very intentional um, on how we can actually be the best that we can. And so let me start by just saying, okay, there's some, there's there's different ways you can be more intentional. One is, is by not responding immediately. Cause when you respond immediately, that's a reaction. Um, but if you can pause and learn to think for just a moment, and, and by the way, that, I'm such a filler of blank information. If I'm having a conversation with my wife and there's a pause from her, I immediately have something to say. I have since learned that that's not a good scenario. If my wife pauses, I'm supposed to pause also. But here's the thing is I immediately want to jump in and say something. Well, when we fill blank conversation with words, we often miss out on being intentional and trying to guide things the way we want them to do. So even when you're speaking, and and it's a good thing, if you pause and they jump in and fill in information, they're probably going to give you something more to help you better negotiate for your client. Um, and, And that's what you want to happen, but you also want to make sure that what you're saying is what you meant to say not what you reactionarily said. And also to make sure that you didn't get frustrated or upset and are reacting based on an emotion. Um, one of the, the things that I see quite often um, in today's market where it is uh, very competitive, it is um, sometimes very difficult when you've been working with a client and they've missed out on three or four homes or something has happened that they're really frustrated with you because they feel like they should have found the house by now and there's just not one available. And and so the the stress level is high, and then this perfect home comes along, and they say to you, whatever it takes, I want to be able to get that home. And that's a high, heavy burden to place on us because in some cases, our buyers may not be able to do what it takes to get that home. Let me say it another way. Um, In some cases, your buyer may have to have financing and the winner of a contract may be somebody that is paying cash and you cannot necessarily beat a cash offer if you have contingencies on financing. But part of this begins with us being very intentional, which means we got to back up 
And we got to start with our clients and have a plan at the beginning. If they, and you tell them, if we come across the perfect home, there may be scenarios where we still won't be able to get it if we're competing against somebody. And, and let's, let's realize that this market that we're in now won't always be like it is. There's going to be times where we've got a lot of time to choose between three, five, 10, 15 different homes. And we have time to plan and, and determine what the best way to negotiate an offer is that it's not just based on price, but also includes other terms that can be advantageous um, to us. Right now, um, you know, in, in many multi-offer markets, you know, the, they're removing a lot of the terms just to make sure they get the offer accepted. In other words, you know, we're not going to ask for any repairs. We're, you know, we're going to do all these things as limited as possible, reducing contingencies to try to get the house period. And I'll be honest with you, I really hope some of this carries over into a normal market where people aren't as renegotiating a contract based on repairs. I hope that we realize the house is what you saw it is. We're looking for major issues. If there's no major issues, we should move on rather than trying to get an extra $25, $75 or $100 out of somebody out of a light switch that's not working properly or out of a, a anti-tip bracket that's not holding the stove up properly or whatever it may be that comes up every single time on every single inspection. I, that, By the way, that was, that was outside of what we were talking about, but um, that was free and a personal little rant. And uh, you can erase that from the video, LaDonna. Anyway, back to intentional negotiations. Um, if you don't respond and you pause and you think and you have a plan that you've already discussed with your clients and you have an idea of tactics that can be used to get to a specific outcome that was determined ahead of time, um, then you can communicate really carefully and very intentionally so that you can increase that opportunity that you can have the desired outcome with the response that you meant to have. And, and what I mean is, is you want to get better and better at perfecting the conversations that you're having when you are talking with other real estate agents. Um, and uh, let me just say this. It's real easy for me to frustrate another agent if I get bullish. And, and when I use the word bullish, what I mean is, is I start acting like what I know is better than what they know. And so, and this has happened towards me as much as me doing it by mistake myself, but I start a conversation and start saying, you know, I, you know we really like this house, but the, you know, the comps that we looked at just don't really support this price. Well, if I say it in a bullish way, like I know more than the listing agent, immediately that person is going to be reactionary to me. And they're also going to be like, I sure hope somebody else gets this house instead of them. And I proved to them that my price was right. I mean, that's going to be the natural human reaction. So if we're going to be intentional in negotiation, when we have a question about maybe comps like, I just mentioned, we've got to find the words that say what we're thinking in a way that gets us information and also maybe says what we were trying to say, such as saying, uh, hey, you know, we really love this house. And and um, did you have um, any comps or anything that support this that would help me show my buyers how to make the best offer? Now, what I didn't say was, I'm questioning your comps. What I did say was, how can you help me get the best offer for your house? Now, all of a sudden, they, they feel obligated to respond, and the response might be, you know, we priced it well above the comps because of where the market's at right now, and we were just hoping to get the best offer we could. And they start giving you information that you can now use in the negotiations. This is how you start perfecting what you do by controlling the way you use your words. And, and it's hard. I mean, I really mean this. It is hard sometimes to not say what you're thinking in order to get the information you need in order to best negotiate. And I say this um, for, on, on another level. The, the next level of saying this is, is that part of this is that we've got to start thinking way in advance of presenting an offer on how we're going to present the offer. And it 
it probably when possible um, negates us um, having a conversation with the agent prior to ever writing the offer so that you can get information from that listing agent in advance. And by the way, listing agents, you should also be more than excited to talk to an agent that's going to be writing an offer because this is your chance to push certain things aside that might become issues later. For example, I recently sold one um, and we knew that the air conditioner, which worked absolutely perfectly, was 26 years old. So what's going to come up on inspection? A 26-year-old air conditioner that's at the end of its life and probably needs to be replaced. So when the agent calls me to talk about showing the house, hey, can I show your house? I say, yes, but I would love to tell you a few things about that house that the, that the sellers are aware of. And we want to make sure the buyers notice while they're there. And I went through a number of things. But one of the things was just we also wanted to point out that that HVAC system, HVAC system is an older unit. It is working absolutely perfect. They have kept it um, working all the time. But I just wanted to make sure that you're aware and your buyers noticed how old it was because they're not expecting to replace that in any offer that they receive. Now, what did I, what was I able to do as a listing agent? I was pre-negotiating inspection items before they ever occurred. That's intentional negotiations. And the only way you can do that is if you sit down with your sellers ahead of time and say, what are the things that we need to make sure buyers are aware of and that we can try to, to deal with in advance of even getting an offer? It could be about price. It could be about swing sets. could be about curtains. could be about repair items. could be about the time of the move and what date the closing date should be. It could be about all kinds of different little things that as listing agents, we can pre-negotiate before we even have the contract. And as buyer's agents, we want to know this stuff so we can set our buyers up on some of this information. And, and it might be that they hear this about the HVAC and, and my clients say, we'll buy this, but we can't afford to put in a new HVAC system. And so we put it in the contract in advance that this offer price includes the replacing of the HVAC system, you know, on the ground level or whichever one it may be. And now you say, well, in today's market, that would never fly. Remember, it's not always going to be today's market. So we're, we are planning for the future while we're talking about the present. And we're thinking about how can we be more intentional and less reactionary as far as negotiations go. And, and by the way, once you come to that conclusion, say, you know what, I'm going to start making sure that what I'm doing is very intentional. I'm going to, if I feel like I have a reaction, I'm going to at least pause and think, is this the right reaction? Is this the reaction I should make? Is this the reaction that benefits my client? Or is this the reaction that I just normally have? And if you pause and think through that, then all of a sudden you get to this point of saying, okay, I, I'm ready now to negotiate intentionally. So what next? And what next is starting to identify specific strategies that result in your ability to negotiate better than the person you're negotiating with. And now, I listen, I've, I teach almost 20 hours of negotiation classes on a national level, and I teach them month after month after month. I just finished up doing a couple in Alaska. I do them all over and negotiations is one of the things that I really, really love. I spend hours and hours on negotiations, mainly, I guess, because I was an attorney and they really focus in on negotiations as an attorney, but it's kind of cruel negotiations as an attorney. But in real estate, it's more of a, we're going to do negotiations in a very happy, ethical way. Where in the attorney world, it's, we're going to do negotiations in the meanest, um, most spiteful way we can possibly do it. Now, I know not all attorneys are that way, but if you deal with enough of them, eventually you'll find one and you'll feel like they're all that way. Unfortunately, a lot of people feel that real estate agents are that way also, and they don't know whether they can trust what they're saying or whether what they're saying is, you know, an attempt to get them to do something such as, well, I think we've got six offers or more coming in on this. And in reality, they have zero and they're trying to push you. And sometimes it's your ability to try to listen and determine what they've said, whether it is honest and true. Now, listen, as real estate agents, we're to be honest with all parties. We should not be lying in negotiations and we should be telling the truth. Um, if we expect multiple offers and our clients has given us permission to disclose that, we should 
disclose what our clients want us to disclose based on our negotiating plan. What we decided up in front with the seller is do we want to disclose this and how how do we want to disclose it? We'll disclose potential offers or only when we receive them. And, and all that should be discussed in advance with your seller so that you then know what to communicate with your buyers. So when we are um, getting into this identifying the strategies, um, we first stop and say, okay, we have to understand why people react the way they do so that the words we use or the things that we do are resulting in the outcomes that we've predetermined and we're intentionally trying to get to. And one of those is is trying to figure out what um, indicators and triggers may be going on with the other party. And what I mean by that, there's there's different triggers that result in people reacting certain ways. Um, let me just give you a, a, an off example, just so you, you understand what I'm saying. Some sellers may be very put out by certain types of offers. And the reason why they may be put out is because they're going through a divorce and they've got to deal with another party in the negotiations of you know, this particular contract and it's going to cause a negative feelings. And so sometimes there's triggers we don't know about or not aware of. And sometimes there's um, indicators and triggers that we can anticipate in advance. And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier and tell you two things that are um, reactionary scenarios that we know that the majority of people react certain ways to, and that's the fear of loss and the hope of gain. Fear of loss is a negative motivator, and it's often the strongest motivator of people. People fear loss and react to that much faster than they react to some hope of positive gain. Hope of gain is a positive motivator, but it is weaker. Once you understand that fear of loss is greater than hope of gain, it changes the, the vernacular, the verbs you use, the, the way you say things. Because now, instead of saying, if you offer 225000 you may be able to win this contract. The same thing can be said from the fear of loss, that was a hope of gain statement. A fear of loss statement would be, if you don't offer 225, there's a chance you could lose this house. Now, what I'm telling you is from a psychological standpoint, we know that people react stronger to the fear of loss than they do the hope of gain. However, let me tell you a secret. We're in Arkansas. And in Arkansas, it's by our very nature to try to put everything into a positive spin. And because of that, we often couch our negotiations from a hope of gain when we're even presenting it to the seller or back towards the buyer of what they may get if they take this counter offer or this offer. In reality, the, the proper couching should be what they will lose if they don't take this offer or accept this counter offer, because those are much higher triggers or motivators to people. Now I say this and a lot of you say, oh, I'll never be able to do that. I'm not saying you should ever change what you do naturally. I'm just suggesting it's something you might think about in negotiations with somebody um, because we often forget that this, the psychological impact is also as important as the actual thing that happens. Um, and when I say that and I use the word psychological impact, I even mean the, the you know, what happens afterwards. Um, because, listen, I can tell you that the most upset clients I've ever had are the ones that lost something, not something, not the ones that got something because that fear of loss is great. By the way, I, some people always say, well, how do you know this about the fear of loss and hope of gain? It's been studied and studied and studied. But I'll give you one example. Uh, the um, One of the studies done in a Harvard um, study was over the um, loss of money and um, and or the finding of money. And what they did was they had somebody um, um, 
find, they have them find $20 and they have them lose $20. Both scenarios, the $20 is taken from them. They don't know it and they lose it. And the other one, they find $20 and they measure the amount of disappointment versus happiness based on a scale. And they, in discussion with hundreds and thousands of people um, until they determine that people are not near as excited about finding money as they are about the loss of that money. Now, I will tell you one additional thing to that. They did find in this study that multiple small gains will override one singular loss. And let me phrase that differently. Somebody that loses $20 is the fear of the fear of loss is not as bad as somebody that finds $10 twice meaning the enjoyment of finding $10 twice, still just $20, is greater than the loss of the 20 because you get two different excitements. And so I say that to say, okay, here's another tactic for you in negotiations. Break up the gains if you're going to present an offer um, with a lot of positive in it. Don't present it as one big offer. Break it up into small things. I've got four or five different things that are going to be great about this offer. <laughs> and, and divide them up and make sure you point them out because multiple gains will often override uh, one negative loss. So I know the offer is only 220000 However, let me tell you these three things that they've done that makes this a much better offer. It's cash. Cash offer. No appraisal you're going to have to deal with. Two, they have waived their inspection, so you don't have to worry about inspection items. Three, they are flexible on the closing date. They can close as soon as three weeks or they'll wait up to uh, two months. It's completely up to your buyer. And you've broken up three gains, even though the house is listed at 235 and you've only offered 220, um, but you're, you're trying to override the loss with multiple gains, not a singular gain. In other words, don't just focus on the cash, which you think is the most important thing. Focus on all the little things that you're trying to do. And then focus in on any of those other underlying influences. I talked about fear of loss and hope of gain, but know that, you know, why might a buyer be um, excited or why might they be stressed? And same with sellers. I mean, are they getting married and so they're buying a new home? Are they... Um, um, you know, found out they were pregnant and having a child, so they're buying a bigger home, or maybe they got a new job and they're buying a nicer home, or maybe it's the opposite. They're stressed and it's, uh, you know, work is, has caused them to lose some money and they're going to have to downsize, or maybe they're getting a divorce, or maybe their children are moving out and they don't need all that space. And if you can recognize those things in advance, then you can help Reverbalize in the negotiations those things to make the offer sound best to them. And you've got to start thinking in advance and, and figure out, you know, one, what are those underlying influences? Why, you know, if you're talking to the buyer's agent, say, hey, why are they looking at this house? Is this what makes this house a great house for them? And you're trying to gain information. Now, buyer's agents, should you be giving personal information out? Most of the time, not. Um, now, if they give you permission to share it, absolutely you can. And that's something, again, in negotiations we have to be aware of is in advance, we've got to be talking to our clients about what information we can share, what information they don't want us to share during the negotiations to try to help in the negotiation process. So having this advanced intentional plan is about gaining information that you can share as well as knowing when to share that particular information. And then you start recognizing what these influences are and, and emotional triggers, like you know, what's making somebody feel frustrated or, or uncomfortable or unsatisfied and, and what are some um, things that you can do to uncover that? I call open-ended questions. And I'll give you some examples of that here in just a minute before we get done. Things you can ask to, to help gain the information that you actually want. Um, and all of this goes back into making sure you're negotiating the right thing. So um, I could spend hours talking about this. Let me see if I can break this down into something very simple. Um, the biggest key point in negotiation is making sure you're negotiating the interests um, and the positions correctly. Um, because most of the time, um, if we can identify what their interests are, the interests are the what 
uh, excuse me, the whys. The positions are the what. And what we want to do is negotiate the interests, not the positions. And I'll see if I can give you a good example of this. Um, uh, a position is where somebody says, I must have a three-bedroom house and an office space. That's a position. However, they may say it to you this way. They they might say, we have to have a four-bedroom house. And that's what they tell you. That's their position. Now, if you just start searching and look only for four-bedroom houses, then you've limited yourself to only what they said to that position, four-bedroom houses only. Now, if you figure out why they want four-bedroom house, we go back and find out it's They wanted three bedrooms because it's themselves and two children, and they have to have a home office because they work from home two or three days out of the week. And you find out, oh, they don't need a fourth bedroom. They need another room that can be used as an office. Well, some properties might be listed with an office that doesn't have a, a closet that does not count as a bedroom, and that could open up another 15 or 20 um, available properties that are out there. Said another way, the why, their interest in that four bedrooms is important to discover so that you might make sure you're seeing everything that they want you to see. And you've got to find out the why, not just the what during the negotiations and specifically from the other parties. So if the other party is actually um, negotiating um, with you and they keep giving you a position like they will not come down below 230,000. Well, that's their position. Why? Why why are they stuck on $230,000? And you find out that the reason why is because they can only get a loan of up to $230,000. And, but they're putting 10% down. And you start talking to that agent and you realize the agent doesn't really understand financing because they're really not going to be financing 230,000 if they're putting 10% down. Because there's $23,000 they're putting down, they're really only gonna be financing $207,000 or so. And so they could go up to 235,000 and still be financing less than 230. But if you didn't figure out the why they were saying they were stuck on 230, you might not be able to help this other agent understand that they're still gonna be financing less than their cap, the maximum amount they can do. But you do that by finding out and asking questions from the other agent and from your clients to determine what it is that is the reason behind their position, not just the position that they take. Um, uh, you know, we, we have to have a fenced-in yard. And if it doesn't have a fenced-in yard, we don't even look at it. Why is that important? Well, it's because we have a, a, a two pets and they play outside and without the fenced in backyard, you know, we wouldn't be able to move directly in. We can't build a, fa- a fence afterwards. Oh, but would it? what if we could negotiate in the contract that the seller would build the fence prior to closing? We could give them a non-fundable deposit you know, for $7,000 to have the fence built, even though the house doesn't have a fence, we could probably get it built and have it done before you move in. Would that still work? Oh yeah, absolutely. As long as we can have the fence in before we close. And again, understanding the why, not just the position or the what is what makes it um, so important, at least for us to learn where compromise is and, and how we can best represent um, those people we um, were negotiating. How many of you have heard of BATNA, B-A-T-N-A? I'm just curious. There's a few of you. Um, so there's a book called Getting to Yes um, by Yuri and uh, uh uh, Rogers, I believe, is the other author of it. And in that, they coined the phrase BATNA. BATNAS is an acronym for Best or Better Alternative to Negotiated Agreement. Better Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement. B-A-T-N-A. And one of the things that they talk about, and there's something we should start thinking about in our negotiations, is knowing your BATNA in advance of the negotiations. BATNA is, what are you going to do if you don't get this one accepted? 
And if there's an alternative and there's another option, then it makes it a lot easier to negotiate if you have a fallback position. Many times you don't want to give your BATNA away and let them know that you have it because you're trying to get them as low as possible, but you know you're only going to go to so you'll only so high because you'll move to option number two. Um, sometimes you might want them to know your bat nut. Maybe you're the seller and you've got three offers and you say, look, we countered yours because it's cash, but we've got offers um, that have financing in them and we're willing to wait and see if it'll appraise because we think it'll appraise and it's higher than your offer. So we want to know if you're willing to come up to this with your cash offer or not. That, and we're giving away our bat now sometimes. We're saying we've got higher offers on the table. Our better alternative is to go to one that has financing. But yours is cash. We'd be willing to take yours only if you're willing to come up to this particular price. In other words, cash doesn't always win. Some people are willing to wait, if the, especially if they think it will appraise um, and there's not going to be a problem with appraisal, they may be willing to wait and, and deal with financing for the right price. I personally just did that with a home of mine. I got um, multiple offers. There's an old investment property and um, I had one with financing and I had several with cash. And I took the one with financing um, that was much higher than the cash offers. Um, well, it wasn't much higher, but it was higher than simply because I believe the house will appraise. And since I believe it'll appraise, it doesn't matter to me that it um, is financing or not, because when I go to the closing table, the money I get is cash either way. <laughs> as long as they got their financing. Um, now, obviously wanted to know a lot about their qualifications and asked if I could talk to their lender. And, you know, I did a lot of, ex you know, um, extra work to make sure I was comfortable, but that was part of the negotiations and getting to the comfort level to make sure I was making the right decision. Now, um, there are a lot of tactics and I mentioned, um, you know, knowing tactics um, and recognizing tactics for two reasons. One is, is tactics you can use help you in negotiations. Second of all, you need to be able to recognize when other parties are using tactics against you that may result in you negotiating in a way you didn't mean to. And so let me see if I can say this another way. These are psychological things that go on and they happen not just in the negotiation of real estate contracts, but they happen in, in the negotiation for getting listings. They happen in the negotiations of inspections. They happen in negotiations at home with your family. Or for me, it happens. My children are professional negotiators. And it's my fault because I taught them at a young age to negotiate everything. And now they know how to manipulate me to get what they want. And they know how far they can push before they end up getting in trouble. And they've gotten really good at negotiating. Um, and it's from a psychological standpoint, because it's at what point is mom going to step in and tell me to back off? And I know that there's, they know all this. They understand what to do and, and who to pull and where heartstrings are involved and how to turn their head and when to squint their eyes and when to smile and when to pout and when to pull up a tear magically out of nowhere to make it look like they're completely devastated. And as soon as you give in, the tears just disappear because they weren't really that upset. They're just capable of doing things to make you lean or and make decisions in the way they want. So here's just a few of the, the psychological tactics that may be used against you or that you could be using. One I've already talked about is that loss aversion. People are more concerned about losing something than gaining something. So verbalizing things from a loss perspective has a much greater chance of, of maneuvering people. I mentioned the multiple gains versus the singular loss one also. Remember, if you can couch your, um, uh, your position with multiple different gains, it can offset one little loss. So see if you can couch things such that you show all the different gains that they might have. Um, a third one is commitment of time and energy. Um, the more time and energy somebody puts into a negotiation, the more likely they are to compromise to get the deal done. Now, 
that is the theory that's used by some people in getting the house under contract with an inspection clause so that they can then renegotiate the contract with inspection because they believe once they've got people committed on time and energy, then they can renegotiate the price at a later point in time. And you have to realize and recognize that when it's happening because sometimes it's good to walk away and say, hey, I know we've committed a lot of time and energy, but you're about to give up a lot of money that we could probably recap or re, uh, recoup, I should have said, instead of recap, we could recoup by selling it again in a short period of time. Um, but we need to be watching for this. Um, moving from the extreme to the rational, when people are presented with something that's really ridiculous, people are more likely to accept the next rational second option. In other words, some of the negotiating tactics is to say um, something very extreme that is completely irrational and say, or we can do this. And, and I do it all the time with my kids. My wife says is I'm the, the, the king of, of stating the extreme. And, and I saw a meme the other day that really reflected me. It's like they get a splinter in their finger, like, okay, time to amputate. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to get the saw. So we cut it off. And of course, I'm stating this extreme. I'm not going to cut off the finger, but then I, I run back to my room real quick and I grab the tweezers. And I come back and I said, okay, let's just use the tweezers, not the saw. And then I can pull it out. Now, had I said, let me go get the tweezers, tears would start running. I don't want tweezers. It's going to hurt. And, but no, I've got to I state this extreme and then move to the rational. And then all of a sudden, the rational is okay. Same thing goes for negotiating contracts. Um, Face-to-face versus technology. We've been trapped in a world of technology for a long period of time. Understand that your ability to get somebody to listen and to be more willing to compromise is greater when you're face-to-face and they can see your facial expressions if you're being honest. If you're not being honest, if you're negotiating from a dishonest position, never get face-to-face with somebody because they will see it. They will feel it. It's not like they know. They just feel that something's not right. And you know that. You've you've been talking to somebody before, and you get through talking to them, you're like, hmm, something's not right here. And that's because their facial expressions are telling you about their intentions, and you, I'm sure you've been in a store or Walmart or something, and you've been walking through, and, and somebody walks through, and they give you this creepy feeling. And you look at their face, and just all of a sudden, you're just like, oh, I don't know why. And I'm not saying this is right, that we should feel this way, but you have to understand that your mind has gathered millions of faces and has analyzed them throughout your lifetime. And when it sees a face and a facial expression, it knows how to react. And if it gives, it makes, as I always say, my hair standing up on my arms, I'm feeling a little creeped out at the moment. If you're feeling that way, you need to pay attention and look around. And it's happened to me outside my yard before. I'm walking through the yard and all of a sudden, you know, I feel weird. And then I look around, there's a snake over there. Well, my subconscious mind saw the snake, even though I hadn't processed there's a snake here. And I stopped and I started feeling weird and started looking around. And then I saw it because our brains are often working when we're not. And in negotiations, that's what's happening. Um, A way to get a little bit more uh, um, aggressive or powerful in your negotiations is try to put yourself in a higher position than the person that you're um, um, negotiating with. Um, I'll give an example of my wife instead of real estate in this case. So my wife um, had a, 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 it was a doctor that she worked for. She runs um, medical offices and she was working for a doctor and this particular doctor would kind of, he was a little bit aggressive on some different things. And, and I told her, I said, when he starts getting aggressive, stand up, you're taller than him. And she was, I said, stand up and talk to him from a standing position is because when you're higher than the other person, it makes them feel a little less. Um, by the way, this is psychological, but if you pay attention to those leaders across um, the country and you pay attention like to presidents and things of that nature, most of them are taller 
people because we give respect to height. It, it's a position thing and it's psychological. I'm not saying it's right, but I think we need to be aware of it. So if you're negotiating with somebody and you're all sitting in chairs across from each other, I'm thinking of listing agreements and things like that with your clients. Um, sometimes, you know, if you reach an impassable scenario, stand up and just say, hey, you know what? That's just not gonna work for me. And that power position plays in at that time. There's a few other things. There's a lot of things I can go through. I'm just going to run out of time. So let me just give you a few other ones. One's mirror technique. If you want people to get on your side, start mirroring what they're doing. That's why drinking coffee with somebody while negotiating is a good thing. They start trusting you and they see you doing what they're doing. Subconscious again, you're drinking coffee. They're drinking coffee. You're eating a donut. They're eating a donut. Those are all great ways to get people to trust you. Um, you can verbally mirror somebody by repeating the words they just said. You know, they might say, and you know, and this is a great house. And then you immediately say, you know, this is a great house. And then you state what you want to say. But by mirroring the last two or three words they said, they they tend to trust you more. You know how to use your vocal tones. Vocal tones um, communicate a story. Plural pronoun, using plural pronouns, using us, we, our during negotiations, like you're on the same team. If you're talking to the other real estate agent, say, we can get this done. You know, our clients, and we, you use those plural pronouns to make it sound like you are working with them and it makes them um, more willing to compromise. Um, offering an unsolicited favor is a great way to get somebody to compromise for you later. Um, meaning doing something for them that they did not ask for in advance. And so uh, uh, let me give you an example. Um, so you're a, uh, um, uh, um, a listing agent and the buyer calls and said, Hey, I'd like to show your house um, this Thursday. He said, great. Um, and you wait till Thursday morning, Thursday morning, you come and say, Hey, Wednesday, I did two things for you. I went and turned all the lights on for you. Um, and I also laid out on the counter, all the, the, the comps that have sold here recently. I know sometimes it can be difficult to pull all the comps for your clients. So I wanted to make sure you knew that I'd already pulled them all for you. You can grab them. They're in an envelope with your name on it. So your client won't know what it is. I wasn't trying to, to do anything for your client, but just for you to help you. Now, this is an unsolicited favor that now they feel like you're really trying to help them through the process. And by the way, it might result in them um, liking what you uh, um, put as far as comps in there. Uh, meaning, in other words, they might trust that those are the best comps and they might not even look up to see if there's any um, comps that they might think is better than the ones you picked. Um, last couple of things, I'll let you go. Um, the atmosphere in which you negotiate is as important as the negotiation itself. I kind of started with this and the being bullish in some ways. You have to be really careful that people want to communicate with you, that they recognize that you care about their opinion, that you will listen to them. And when somebody's trying to tell you something, it's just just shut up and be quiet. And I really mean that. If somebody calls you and says, hey, I, I just want to share something with you, say, absolutely, and shut up. No matter what it is and how much you disagree with it, let them get it out. And once they're through, don't, don't immediately get through and then go, okay, are you finished? Because then you've messed up all of the listening you've just done. When they get through, say, you know what, I, I hear what you're saying. Um let me share just a couple of additional things with you that might help as we start this negotiation. And then you share your couple of points that may be antagonistic to what they said, but you did it in an atmosphere of welcoming their comments and then providing your comments. Because when people feel like they were heard, they are more willing to compromise at the end. Sometimes it's just about the principle of being heard. This house is way overpriced. And they need to tell you that and tell you all the comps and you listen to them. So, you know what? I hear exactly what you're saying. Um, let me give you just a couple of pieces of information. You know, um, the market, because there's just no housing out there and it's been going up so fast, uh, they were trying to make a decision where they're waiting towards the end of the year and selling or go ahead and trying to sell now at the price that we thought we could get towards the end of the year. And since there's no other houses in the market at this price range, we chose to go ahead and price it, you know, aggressively towards the end of the year. And we understand it may be higher than what your clients are willing to, to pay, but we just feel like there's enough buyers out there that we can probably get this price. And 
there, you've said it. They've heard it. They've made their comment. And now they're probably more likely to go back to the client and say, look, you know what? There's nothing else out there. They have priced it, but they're probably right. There's probably somebody that's going to pay this price. If you want this, or said better, if you don't want to lose this house, then you're probably going to have to pay up, even though it's above the current comps. And that's you giving advice, if in fact that's true advice. Um, there's um, a whole lot of things I'd love to share with you. And like I said, I, I, I teach almost 20 hours worth of negotiation in a row. So there's a lot of information, but let me give you just um, in just some open-ended questions that um, you can use to gain information and you're welcome to um, reuse anything I say, or you're welcome to call me at any point and say, hey, Dale, I need some better ideas. But these are open-ended questions I use all the time. If you've ever negotiated with me, you've heard these. Um, some of you probably will go, yeah, oh, yeah, I've heard Dale say that before. Um, one, uh, and I'm just going to give you a bunch of them and then I'll be done. Is uh, So questions, open-ended to try to get you to say the question, for them to open up and respond and give you information. So you're going to Ask the question and shut up and listen. That's the bottom line. And by the way, I know I'm not supposed to say shut up, but since I can't say it in my home anymore because I have children, I use it quite uh, um, frequently when I'm teaching because um, I've found out that you all won't curse me too bad for saying the word shut up. So here's the questions that I use. Um, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? And I shut up and I listen. Or uh, what's the core issue here? Why aren't we able to work this out? I shut up and I listen. Um, how does that affect things if we change the closing date or whatever the issue is? And then I shut up and listen. Um, how on board are your clients with this? Because I'm talking to the agent. And I'm trying to find out if what they're saying is their idea or their client's idea. Um, because if I find out it's the client's idea, I can quickly call my client and say, hey, guess what? <laughs> Here's where they're at. I know it because I just got it from the agent. Um, how will this affect your clients? Um, what what do your what do you think your clients feel is the biggest challenge to getting this done? And that's that's what I use all the time. What do you think is the biggest challenge for us to get this done? And then you find out is it price? Is it closing timeline? Is it what is it that's most important to them? Um, what's the biggest challenge you face with your clients? By the way, this is befriending the real estate agent to see what they'll tell you. What's your biggest challenge with your client right now? How can I help you when I write this offer? And um, is there something other than price that might influence your client to say yes? This is trying to see if there's things that are important to them. You know, this is where they might say, yeah, they'd rather have a cash offer or they'd rather have no inspection because they know there's some inspection issues or whatever it may be. A few more. Um, what about this? Does it work for you? Or what would you need to make this work? Said another way. Um, how about it seems there is something here that's bothering you or um, what makes you ask that question? Yeah, somebody says, do you have any comps that support the list price? Instead of just saying yes or no, you might say, what makes you ask? And then see what they're really thinking, the why, not just the what. And last one, just for help, is what about this is important to you? And this could be to your clients or to another agent. Um, and then be quiet and listen and see what they'll, information they'll give you and keep an atmosphere that's open and welcoming um, because we're all stressed. Listen, you all, we all are, are feeling the pressures of finding homes for buyers when there's not any and feeling the pressures of uh, other agents that are stressed out and need more time and don't have um, an opportunity to do everything they'd like to do um, uh, in life and enjoyment. Um, but listen, you all, this too will pass. And I just encourage you to, to open up, listen, um, dive down deep, figure out why they're saying what they're saying, not just what they're saying, and understand there's tactics to getting information. And let's negotiate with the, the best interest of our clients in mind, but also in a way that's respectful of those people that we're negotiating with. LaDonna, I will call it quits at 9.59, and I don't know if you have any final words for them, but I just thank you all for, uh, again, seeing you this morning. It's always good to see your faces. Good to, good to have everybody. Thank you so much for participating. Hope to see you at the next one, the end of, uh, when is it? End of July, right? July the 28th. So we'll see you then. Thank y'all. Thanks, Dale. See you guys.